Good morning, everybody. I'm going to read from Exodus uh, chapter 3. You can follow along on the screen in front of me if you want, or uh, you can turn in your, uh, the Bibles that are provided for you in uh, the pew, either one, to follow along. We have been telling the story of not just the Exodus, but the Exodus is an illustration or a a true historical event that points to a greater event, a greater uh, redemption, a greater uh, rescue. And that's the one we're talking about, that the story of redemption of God's people out of this broken and uh, lost world. It was the reason why when we had an option because of the snow day last uh, Sunday to just skip this one or to just uh, put the message on the internet and hope you got to it. But I felt like that, how do you have advanced the story without knowing the main character? How in the world do you talk about redemption without talking about the Redeemer? And obviously, you can weave the Redeemer, but this particular passage reveals to us not just who our Redeemer is, but what His name is. And so, with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord as I read. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And then he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Pezzarites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign of for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to him, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, have sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. May God help us to understand this, his word. Every generation has sought to identify, define, and even name God. You think about uh, a message that it seems long ago now, but it's really just a few weeks that Pastor Dan brought where he, he began to describe these generations with these terms that philosophers and sociologists have been giving these generations. A f- few generations ago, there was a there was a generation called modernists, and they're still modernists who live today. Sometimes they're called secularists. And, and when you ask them to define God, who is God, they tend to say, well, he, he is a distant God. He is a holy God. He is uninvolved. He's disinterested. He's a clock master who started the world spinning and then sat back and had to watch because he's not really all that concerned with what's going on here among his creatures or creation because that's beneath him. And so he got a distance. Then uh, replacing the modernist, and this was more of a reaction to the modern way of thinking, were the postmodern, and they just simply said, God cannot be known. He just can't be known. That is... Even though evangelical Christians have said, this is who God is, and then you've got Muslims, and you've got Hindus, and then you've got atheists and agnostics, and, and, and truly nobody really can know. And then they have been replaced. And, and I think this is one of the, uh, the things that Pastor Dan uh, communicated to us is that we're probably not in a postmodern culture anymore. These, these generations are coming so fast because the way in which they think is changing. And now one of the descriptions of the current generation is just simply to call it, because there's not a better name for it right now, is just post-Christian. That is, there was a time when our culture was, even though it wasn't necessarily uh, full of evangelical Christians, it at least had a Christian worldview, at least in answering this question, who is God? And because of that, they would say, he is whatever you think he is. And whatever you think he is, is good as anyone else's definition of who God is. Pew, who tries to keep track of our culture. They have been, along with Gallup, uh, pollsters who have tried to, particularly uh, Pew is known for its study on religion and culture, has uh, said that the fastest growing segment of, uh, of our culture, particularly among those who are millennials, that is early 30s on down, uh, is no designation or none. About uh, 20%, one in five Americans self-designate themselves as none. No religious affiliation, no religious thought, no religious background. The reason that's significant is that Pew believes, by the answers in which they are getting, 
that the evangelical Christian, and the only reason you put an adjective in front of Christian is that even evangelicals, what makes evangelicals evangelicals is that we believe there's a gospel that is to be proclaimed. Not just believed, but if you believe it, you must proclaim it. And that segment of our society has been in decline since uh, the Pew first started uh, doing the surveys, and it's down to about a 25.4% of the United States. And one of the shocking things that Pew uh, uh, revealed was that 50% of that 25.4% live in 11 states, all in one section of the country. Isn't that amazing? One out of every two people who call themselves evangelical live in one of 11 states. And they project that it won't be long before those who self-designate as none will outnumber the number of people who who designate themselves as evangelical Christian. The reason that's important is that this passage answers the question from a God who self-defines. That is, by definition, God self-defines. That is, if it's truly a God, and the definition of a God is a being that is greater than us. And, and because of that, we can't define him, he has to define us. Which is one of the reasons we wanted to do the Exodus series, is that like the song that was sung a little earlier, our identity is revealed to us in the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories in which we believe. Our reality is shaped by the story. And, and, and there is a story to tell, but within this story itself, God self-defines. What I mean by that is, and that's why this is an incredibly practical passage for us in chapter 3, and I didn't want to skip it, because in the story, not only is Moses who tells us that there's going to be a greater Moses to come, but God himself, in introducing himself to Moses, defines himself. And the very first way he defines himself is in the very first verse. Now, such an important word. Moses was keeping this flock of the father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The very first self-revelation of God in our text is that God reveals himself as the God of strategic delays. That's why that word now is so important. Moses is not the same Moses that he once was. Jillian's story is to tell us she's not the same person because she encountered the gospel through a person. It changed her identity so much that it was such a strategic delay for her that now she is what she received. Her identity is radically changed. That happens to Moses. Moses' life seems to be at an incredible dead end from a human perspective. He was adopted into Pharaoh's family by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the royal household. His identity was an Egyptian, not an Israelite. He discovered that he actually was an Israelite. He begins to identify himself with their suffering. And as he does that, he begins to notice the oppression so much, so identified, that when he begins to see a guard oppress a Jew, he 
he goes up to him and beats him to death takes justice in his own hands. And because that changes everything, and he can no longer identify himself as an Egyptian because he can no longer be in the household of Pharaoh as a killer of Pharaoh's men, he goes running off into the wilderness, into the desert, lives there for 40 years. Almost laugh. I, f- I forgot where Jillian, there's Jillian. I almost laugh when you said, you know, now I'm in my 50s. You can identify Moses is 80 when he realizes that God is calling him. All the wealth and status and strength are all gone. He doesn't have any of those things anymore. From a human, Moses is a failed, forgotten old man watching someone else's sheep. Even Moses asks the question in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Even Pharaoh, even Moses wouldn't pick Moses, 80-year-old Moses. Moses senses his weaknesses. Moses senses that Pharaoh is powerful. Moses senses uh, that there's an incredible risk going to try to rescue the people. It's an understandable question. Who am I? Why would you have not come to me when I had power and prestige and position and wealth? When I was considered an Egyptian, I had a say in Pharaoh's court. Now I'm a nobody. Exactly where God wanted him to be. Now let's be honest. You and I would not pick the 80-year-old version of Moses. We would have picked the 40-year-old version of Moses. Moses wouldn't even pick. I'm counting that as an amen. (laughs) Even Moses would not have picked Moses. But God does. He's exactly where he wants to be. Come, verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh. He knows he's 80 years old. He knows all the power, prestige, wealth is all gone. That you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Can I give you just two principles before we have to move on from this self-revelation that he's a God of delays, strategic delays. And the first principle is this. You are of little use to the kingdom of God and to God until you've come to the end of yourself. That's called repentance. We want to make repentance for when we do something really incredibly bad, something that it is incredibly needs obvious intervention when it's really coming to the end of yourself. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? I, I love that story because this phrase is there that so describes what's happening to Pharaoh here. You know, the prodigal goes to his dad and says, hey, dad, you know, uh, I really don't want to be a farmer. Can you, I know you're not dead. Can you give me my part of the inheritance and I can go off to the city and live there because you know they've got better apartments, more is going on, uh, better social clubs for people like me who really are not farmers. And dad says, yes. Gives him the money, goes off, spends it till it's all gone. All his friends are gone. He finds himself needing a job. He gets a job where? where the only thing he knows how to do as a farmer, he's particularly among pigs, he's feeding them, and, and, he, and, and the slop that he's feeding them begins to be attractive to him to eat. And he begins to long for home. And I love this phrase. When he came to his senses, 
repentance. And what's happening in this text is when we come to our senses about who we are, that's coming to the end of yourself. To have a relationship with God, we have to first come to the end of ourselves and ask for mercy. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. The second principle is not only are we of no use until we come to the end of ourselves, God's timing is virtually never the same as ours. If we took a survey in the room and asked when you really needed God to intervene, when you knew no way out of the problem, did he come when you asked or did he come at a different time? Most of us would reply it was not in our time. It might have been in the right time, but it wasn't in the time that we thought. That's where Moses is. Again, we would have picked the 40-year-old Moses, not the now Moses. We want the rich, the powerful, the respected Moses, not the sheep herder Moses. I can, I can imagine as he shows up to the Israelites and, and the ones that do remember, Moses, where have you been? I've been out in the wilderness doing what? I, I, I'm sure you've been preparing, gathering the war elements. You're, you've been getting ready for war. No, no, I've been tending sheep. And they're not even my sheep. God's delays are always strategic. They're never accidental. Do you remember the story of uh, Jairus in the New Testament? Here, here Jesus is healing and teaching and, and, and this synagogue ruler comes up to him and says, hey, hey, Jesus, my daughter's sick. Can you come and help her and, and, and heal her? And Jesus says, sure, let's, let's go to your house. And he begins walking that way. But as he's walking that way, people are pressing in and asking him questions. He's often called the rabbi. Hey, rabbi, I got this theological question or this pragmatic uh, application of what you've been teaching. And so he'll slow down and he'll teach a little while. And then somebody touches him in the crowd. And, and of all things, people have been touching him all day. Why all of a sudden he turns around and says, hey, oh, somebody touched me. He, he took another moment for teaching. Meanwhile, Jarius' daughter's dying. Don't you think there's a little urgency here? Sure enough, he, he heals this woman and he begins to teach again. And, and a friend of Jarius or somebody who was taking care of her said, hey, don't bother the master. Your, wife, your daughter died. It's too late. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, 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 we're going to keep on going. He could have he said, you know what? You know, uh, that was a, a ministry moment. We lost it. There'll be others. Instead, he, he, he goes and he heals her and, and you think, how's that strategic? Because you and I, 2,000 years after this event, are still talking about this girl. Not only did he, he heal her, raise her from the dead, and she became a disciple, but we're talking about her. Had there not been that strategic delay, you and I would not be talking about Jairus' daughter. Moses and you and I might be ready now. It may not be now, it might be later, but it will always be at his right time. The second, this, the, the second self-revelation in our passage comes in, in verse 2, and it says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him as a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not 
consumed. So the second point he makes here, or the second self-revelation is that God is the God of dramatic experiences. When you think about what's happening here to Moses, how dramatic it is because of this fire, this fire is unusual. Why in the world, when God decided I'm going to show up, I'm going to show up as a burning bush. I'm going to show up as a fire. Why a fire? The truth is the reason a fire is so strategic here as a, a choice of revelation of God is because we don't assent to God We experience God. We don't assent to a fire. Yes, it's there, it's burning, but we experience it. It's bright to the eyes. The entire human existence comes into the experience and is changed. That that brightness of the light that comes from a fire as you stare into that fire, or if it's a big fire, it overwhelms your senses, particularly as you understand that it's hot to the touch, or even to get near, you understand that the roar in your ears as it begins uh, to, to burn, and then ultimately as the smoke fills your nostrils, there's not a part of your being that is not not in, in, in experience and senses the presence of God. Alec Moyer, who wrote a commentary on, on this, said, this is the point in time when Moses becomes a believer because he encounters God not in an ascent, like we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God, but in the sense where Moses recognizes I'm a sinner. And I fall short of the glory of God. Has that happened to you? Have you gotten to the point in your life? I know it can easily be caught up. I'm, I'm a part of EP. I'm, I'm a member of EP. And, or I've been here a long time. But th- that is not the same thing. Is that my senses have experienced God. That literally God has invaded and changed everything. My identity, my reality, my story. Has that happened to you? Are you still referring to humanity as fallen and not yourself? Are you still referring to God as that distant, disinterested being? Or your redeemer? And the truth is, before you can even try to change the world, those of you who are, who are young and aspiring to make a difference, Maybe you're older and you aspire to make a difference. Before you can change the world, you personally have to be first changed by God. Before you can make a mark on other people, you have to be marked by God. The first step in becoming like Jesus is acknowledging how unlike Jesus you are. And knowing that He loves you anyway. You see, there's two different problems there, isn't there? You know, we, we tend to, to say that we are like Jesus and we're not. Or that if I know that I'm not like Jesus, then he can't love me. And the reality is, he knows you're not like him. That's why you're walking on holy ground. The truth is, my life does not look like Jesus. And before you get all upset about your pastor not being like Jesus, you don't either. What we look like together, this is what I see, are people who need Jesus, not people like Jesus. 
you see the difference? If I encounter someone that I can see their need for Jesus, I am more likely to want to know them than people who think they already have arrived. And the truth is, it's utterly exhausting to pretend otherwise. The third picture he gives of himself is one of an absolute sufficiency. Do you notice? This fire doesn't burn anything. He looked, this is verses, the end of verse 2, the beginning of verse 3. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. This fire, unlike any other fire we have ever experienced on this planet, does not need fuel to burn. The fire depends on nothing. The fire has its own infinite source. And that explains Moses, the answer to Moses' question. The fact that a fire that does not consume, that it's its own source. Moses asked in verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God answers them in verse 14, Moses, this is what I want you to tell them. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, because most of us uh, do not read the original, which is in Hebrew, we don't catch this. But can you imagine you meet me on the street or maybe after church you come up to me and you don't know my name and you say, what is your name? And I say, just call me Is. Just Just call me the most common word in the Hebrew vocabulary. The form of be, to be. Being. Just call me being. That's what he, that's his answer to them is, I want, I want to take the most unthought of name and I want that to be my name. In the original language, it's called Yahweh. It was a form of to be, to literally means being. In fact, the, the Jews then said, you know, we're going to take, we're going to take the most common verb in our language and we're now never going to use it again. We're going to take this form of to be and nobody's ever going to utter it or write it, including when Moses sits down to write the scriptures, he takes the word Yahweh out of what was there. And he begins to replace it with another word for Lord, and it is Adonai. And so anytime you read the Old Testament and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, the word that should be there is the word Yahweh, being. Can you imagine that we've decided today that we're never going to use the word is? We're going to have to use something else but we're never using is. That's the equivalent of what's happening here. And what he's teaching is this. I want you to tell them, being sent you, is sent you. Nothing has caused me. I cause everything. I have no beginning or end. I always am. That's what you tell them sent you. 
Everyone and everything depends on something else to exist and to continue to exist except for God. God is the God of absolute sufficiency. He does not need us. You know, sometimes in the church, we'll get this idea that we are the arms and the legs and the mouths of God. As if he is dependent upon the church or personally me as the preacher or you as the congregant to do anything. You see how limiting that is of God He does not need you. This does not mean you now have an excuse for not being involved in the mission of God. He has decided that he would use you at the right time in the right life when it's now. But that does not mean he's dependent upon you. If you decide that you are going to exit out of the mission of God, you're going to exit out of the life of the church. It is no skin off God's nose. I think it also explains something that Jesus said. In John 15, John records some of Jesus' teaching about a vine and branches. He says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. That is, Jesus is saying, if you want to be a happier person, if you want to be a stronger person, you want to be an authentic person, you want to be a flourishing person, you want to be a person who becomes a genuine human being the way it was designed to be, you have to understand my statement. That I'm the vine, and you're just the branches. And you can do nothing without me. And you say, wait a minute, Bruce. We've done great things without God. The artificial heart was invented by an atheist. There have been uh, great uh, uh, human minds that have accomplished great things, or maybe even from a Christian perspective, you know, I have a a mind, I've got my degrees, I've got my prestige, I've got my success, that you would commend and say, I can do some things. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying that you don't have a mind, or you don't have talent, or you don't have a work ethic, or you don't have opportunities, he's just saying, I gave you all of them. And without me giving them to you, you can't do anything. That is, when you've worked really hard and on a project and you've got it to success and you've brought money into your business, he gave you that opportunity, he gave you that mind, he gave you those talents. I think that's important because in order for us to continue with those things and those opportunities, he has to continue to give them. And this is so humbling, isn't it? This is why people hate chapter 15 because it's so humbling to know that God is saying, yes, you can do a lot of things, but only if I give you the mind, the work ethic, the opportunities, the talents to do those things. There's a great story between Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon, one of his disciples from the 16th century. And Philip is one of his uh, students, and the Reformation is just catching on, but it's struggling. And and Philip is worried about the counter-Reformation that might come and all the persecution. And then he worries about, do the people in the churches really get this gospel justification by faith alone? He begins to worry about that and getting the print out and getting people to learn how to read because nobody's reading the Bible for themselves. And, and so Martin Luther turns to Philip and his favorite phrase to him is this one. 
Let Philip cease to rule the world. That's Martin Luther's way of saying, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Do you really think you've been keeping the world going all this time? I have a, I have a two-year-old grandson and he was like the, the two-year-old version of the twins. That is, nobody existed in their world unless you're in their presence. That is, if you've ever met a two-year-old, you don't exist when you're not there. Your name does. It's not like they don't recognize Pops and Nana. They, but as far as reality, it's, you're not part of their reality because it's as far as they can think is present. Sometimes we're like that. We think that there is no reality apart from us, that we're the center of everything that is. And we need to hear, let Bruce cease to rule the world. We can relax. There is a sovereign God who rules and reigns. And in one day is going to make it all right. See how humbling this is? You remember the, the little storybook that you read to kids that uh, it's a, the little train that goes up the mountain. It has a little motto that I think has become more of our culture than we want to admit. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Well, the motto, the motto of the Bible for human beings is, I can't do it. I never could do it. I never did do it. And if I ever do do it, it was God doing it through me. You see how humbling that is? To know that God is absolutely self-sufficient and we are not. It prepares us for this part, the, the meat of this passage, which is found in verse 6. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses did what? When he found out who he's talking to in the fire, he hides his face for he was afraid to look at God because God reveals himself as a mysterious nearness. What's the mystery here? Many, many scholars, many, many people will say that the mystery of this text is that there's a fire in a bush, but the bush is not consumed. That is a mystery, but it's not even close. It's not even the same zip code as this other mystery, that Moses was not consumed by a holy God. The presence of God with that which is not holy, over and over again, the example is that the person is lost. His character demands all be made right. It's the reason I have hope, hopefully you have hope, that when somebody gets away with an injustice, an oppression, an ugly a wound upon the human soul that we inflict on one another and it doesn't seem to be made right, we know this, because God is just, it will be made right. We long for everything that is upside down in our world to be right side up and God says that is going to happen when he comes. Verse 5 says, do not come near me. He's talking to Moses. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Why is Moses not consumed? 
Even, even the Israelites in a few chapters are going to go to Mount Horeb, which is Mount, where Sinai is, where the Ten Commandments are given, and, and they don't even touch the mountain. They get as far away from the mountain when Moses is on top meeting with God. Why is that? Because they knew if they even touched the holy place, they would be consumed. So why is he not? Verse 2, way up at the beginning, it says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And so the natural question that arises from the text is this, is the angel of the Lord or is it the Lord? And the answer is yes. The angel of the Lord is the Lord who is a merciful accommodation so that we are not consumed by a holy God because we are not. This is how God can come near undeserving sinners like us and like Moses. And this explains Jesus' own words on the cross when God assigns him, accredits him, accounts to him our sin, the sin of his people. So at 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin. At that very moment, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because to come near would even consume the Son. When God placed our sins on his Son, even God could not come near. It also explains something that Jesus says when they're asking him, hey, you're the new teacher in town. Where did you get this learning? Who sent you? We, we get our learning from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you know what Jesus' answer was? Before Abraham was, I am. God can draw near to us because the angel of the Lord, the accommodating mercy of God is Jesus Christ who died for you and who loves you this much. That's why the most famous, most quoted, most beloved verse in all of the scripture is for God so loved the world that he gave his own son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Or in Romans 5 eight, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The way that this chapter says that is in verse 8. I have come down to rescue them from slavery. Our Redeemer has a name. And his name is Jesus, which means salvation. Christ is the the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, but Jesus is the, is the name that means salvation. Same as Joshua. Because Jesus is our Redeemer. And that makes him the great I Am. Do you know him? Have you experienced him? If you know him and you experienced him, have you proclaimed him? Do you see how it works? Do you know him? If you really know him, he's not just an ascent of some facts. But have you experienced him? Has he changed your life? And if he's changed your life like Jillian shared, then it's going to result in you seeking to change others. That God would use you in the life of other people. That's the story. 
She first received and then gave. We receive our Savior and then we proclaim Him to others. That's how it's always worked. If we've been truly encountering Jesus, encountering our God, then how in the world could we ever keep that to ourselves? We can't. We won't. The answer isn't to fire you up and command you, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's informative. I just need to introduce you to Jesus. Because if he's invaded your being, you can't help. The way that Jeremiah says is that my bones inside me are on fire if I try to keep this silent. Let's pray. Father, thank you that today you introduced us to the hero of the story, the Redeemer, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who though Moses will lead the people out of a physical bondage that literally carries physical wounds on their backs and wounds that nobody can see on their souls, he's only a pointer to the Redeemer who comes and brings life to what is dead. Not sick or without hope, but simply dead. And just as Jairus' daughter, we te- recount her story. Her story is our story. We were once dead and now alive. We once were blind, but now we see. Father, help us. Help us to encounter you by invading our beings, corporately in worship, but also individually when we're with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.